Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And here, of course, we have the famous reasons why Mary and Joseph were on that journey while they were away from home for Jesus' birth. The Roman ruler, Caesar Augustus, had ordered a census. Now, first, who was this guy? Who was this Caesar Augustus? Well, he was this Caesar. He was great nephew to the famous Julius Caesar. And uh, Caesar Augustus was heir to the throne. But this, this position, it just wasn't handed to him on a, senior, on, on a silver platter. He was an ambitious guy. He had to uh, fight his way to power. But once he achieved it, he proved to be a very effective and efficient, strong leader. He reigned over the Roman Empire for over 40 years. And he strengthened it and expanded it in all sorts of different ways. And he was actually the first man to be dubbed emperor of the Roman realm. And the title Augustus was an honorary one. It wasn't actually his real name. It was something given to him. Caesar Augustus, with Augustus meaning literally holy or revered. The term Augustus was actually up to this point only reserved for basically the Roman gods. And here it is being given to now the new Roman emperor. He was the first Roman ruler then in a sense who was considered in many ways to be a god. He was heralded even as a savior. There's an inscription on the Greek town of Halicarnassus, which refers to Caesar Augustus as the savior of the whole world. So who is Caesar Augustus? He was a man of unparalleled wealth and power. He was probably one of the ten most powerful men in all of human history. And he was also a man undoubtedly with an unparalleled ego. He was seen as a god, as a savior, and he was worshipped and exalted as one by men. And isn't it fitting then? But the man who was considered a God be the first focus of our passage here today that is about the one true God-man, Jesus. And we see in verse 1 that the Caesar Augustus, he ordered a census. And there were probably several reasons for this. The first being, perhaps primary one, taxation. In this day, everyone had to be registered so that the Roman government knew who you were and knew how much taxes to collect from you, what you owed. And for the process of that, you had to travel to your hometown because that's where and how the, the records were kept for this sort of thing. But undoubtedly, there's also a very large ego in view here behind the reason for the census. Notice this is not just any census. The text says this was a census of the entire world. Now, the entire Roman Roman Empire was under a census. And my friends, that is a massive undertaking. And this was done in part as an incredible exercise of power and authority for the newly acquired Roman lands to know who was the boss. And for this God-man emperor, Caesar Augustus, to be able to say, look at how great I am. Look at all the people that I rule over. My kingdom is unparalleled. My reign is supreme. I am truly a God in this world. In this census, it was an announcement of the greatness of Caesar Augustus. It was a declaration to the world, I am your great and glorious king. You must do what I say. Ultimate, unbridled arrogance. That was Caesar. Self-proclaimed king and lord of the world, in the eyes of some, the savior of the day. And then reading on, and with this in mind, we see, of course, now an incredible Christmas contrast that develops in this passage. Look now at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first newborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Now, the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was probably as unpleasant as you possibly could imagine. The distance was about 80, not 80 miles. It's not too bad if you happen to have a car or a chariot at hand. But Mary and Joseph, they were poor peasants. Perhaps they were fortunate enough to secure an animal for her to ride on, but the text doesn't tell us that. It's, it's very possible she could have walked these 80 miles, fully pregnant, eight to nine months pregnant in the cold of winter. And surely it wasn't lost on her that she could give birth at any time. And so her heart undoubtedly, undoubtedly felt anxiety and fear. What if I go into labor on this terrible journey? She must have thought to herself. She might have thought, I really want my mom around. She's only 13, 14 years old, remember, after all. And you know, did they know that then this, but this, this forced journey to Bethlehem, it was actually a fulfillment of messianic prophecy? The prophet Micah declared that the soon-to-be-born Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Did they connect the dots? That this is why they were going there? I don't think so. They knew they had a very special child and believed that God would watch over them, but they didn't really have the full picture of who this child was and what he would do. This was a, so this was an exceedingly difficult journey, and it probably even caused them to question a little bit, God, what exactly are you doing here? And I imagine they arrived in Bethlehem exhausted and cold, and upon arrival, they found poor accommodations indeed. The text tells us there was no place for them at the inn. Now, modern picture books and retellings and movies of the nativity scene here actually do a, a disservice to us when we think about this particular part of the story. They actually are somewhat misleading. You see, archaeology tells us that the inn that they were shut out of isn't certainly what we often think it to be. Inns at this time, they were not at all like hotels or uh, homes. There was no hardwood floors. There, were, there was no furniture. There were no even glass windows and glass pane windows and curtains. These were not a first century bed and breakfast. Okay? That's not what ancient traveler inns were like. Rather, these inns, they were more like campgrounds. And travelers would essentially make home in primitive open-air stalls. What you would do if you were to build a traveler's inn is you would hopefully find like a hillside. And out of that hillside, you would build a large awning that came out, a large roof that extended away. So at least one side was protected from the elements. But the rest of it was kind of open air. Think more Lake County fairground than your quaint little bed and breakfast. That was an ancient traveler inn of the day and large open-air enclosures. And then there are partitions under this enclosure, fences really, that basically marked off specific locations within the enclosure, stalls really. And travelers would rent basically one of these stalls. They weren't large. They probably weren't furnished at all. Maybe just a little bit of hay to kind of make a bed on. And so inns were just simply open-air shelters really with enough space in your own little partition to store some belongings and to lay down. But when Mary and Joseph arrived at this primitive campground, all the stalls were taken. So what was their alternative? Well, probably the open-air courtyard, where all the other travelers who were lucky enough to get a stall tied all their animals. So ancient inns, they typically had a big open, open courtyard away from the, 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 the awning and the covered space, of which perhaps there were several. And in this open courtyard, that's where all the campfires were for cooking. It's where all the posts were to secure animals. It's where all the feeding troughs were to feed the animals. And it's likely this area where Mary and Joseph ended up. It wasn't a cleanly swept barn. 
It wasn't a cave like some traditions uh, maybe lead us to believe. The text certainly doesn't give any inclination of that whatsoever. It just says they didn't have a spot under the awning in a stall. So it seems most likely they settled down in the main courtyard. Under the stars, totally exposed to the elements, animals all around them, campfires crackling in various places, and probably a good number of people with them as well, spending time in this common area. They weren't isolated. They weren't alone in a barn or a cave. They were in a place of activity with people, with animals. More, think again, more county fair than quaint nativity scene. And it appears that then soon after their arrival, Mary began to feel it. Contractions. Signs of the birth was upon her, and fear must have gripped her even more. This isn't how I plan to give birth, she thought. Joseph maybe even ran around, please, somebody, can they give us a, a space? But apparently no one was willing to do that. And quickly it became time that her, evident that her time had come. It's likely perhaps some people came to her aid. They were in a public square after all. Certainly other people were around. Maybe even God provided a traveling doctor. Certainly many people were aware. Okay, there's a woman giving birth over there. And Mary, because Mary's cries of childbirth rang out into the cold night air. And as she labored, her nervous husband, Joseph, of course, did what he could to soothe and to calm his scared, uncomfortable wife. And so here, probably on the dirt ground, outside, by the light of a campfire, amid the smell of mud and manure and just overall filth, a baby was born. It wasn't pretty. There was no hospital bed, no clean linens. Clean clean water might have even been hard to come by. But soon, young Joseph was holding in his arms a naked, slippery, sticky son of God. And that was the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. But it seems there's no indication that something truly special, undescribable, unprecedented, earth-shattering has happened here. Look again at the text and notice what's absent, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. See, are there any miraculous displays of power here? A special star? A divine announcement the Son of God has come into the world? Some music? Cue the music? There's none of that. There's no special fanfare at Jesus' birth. No voice from heaven. No special light. It was totally ordinary. Just the crackling of a campfire. The tears and sighs of a relieved and exhausted mother and the whispering of people perhaps around them. Wow, I'm glad that's over. Now I can finally get some sleep. And of course, the cry of the infant son of God, who appeared no different than any other baby, who entered the world not in an enviable, attention-grabbing way, not with a halo shimmering over his forehead, but in in a setting that was dirty and utterly pitiable. Maybe some of the other mothers around thought, well, I'm sure glad I didn't have to give birth in a setting like that. Mary and Joseph, they wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes, which were long strips of linen that were wrapped independently around each limb. So Jesus really would have looked like an infant mummy. And surely the parents then held and rocked their newborn child for a long time, gazing at his face, wondering, who are you? What would you become? His name is Jesus, they must have said to themselves. 
And then eventually the endorphins of their traumatic birth experience began to wane. And surely they began to get tired and needed to sleep themselves. But they had no crib. They had no bed. So they placed Jesus in a manger, which is essentially a feeding trough. It was possibly something that was just built naturally into the ground. And I guarantee you it wasn't clean. And I'm sure Joseph did the best that he could. He probably did his best to wipe off all the spit from sheep and camels that were in that trough. He made sure to remove all the caked on manure. And there they placed the sleeping son of God in a feeding trough for animals in the middle of a campground. You see, the real birth scene, it isn't pretty. It isn't glamorous. It isn't romantic. It's raw. It's real. It's dirty and messy and ordinary. Mary and Joseph certainly weren't thrilled about how this birth played out. And they would have been shocked to hear that today we're singing songs of joy about their experience that night. Now they knew that Jesus was special. But he entered the world in the most uncomfortable, ordinary, and lowly way. Which is, of course, purposeful in God's intent. See, Jesus could have been born in a marble palace. Surrounded with all the glories and riches and comforts he deserved, but he wasn't. He was born in a campground, on the dirt ground. Why? Why did God have it done that way? See, what was the essential purpose of Christ's mission? Ultimately, to sacrifice himself in order to save mankind. It was to humbly serve humanity through a selfless act of love, to enter into our world and to experience our full extent of humanity and in that empathize with our weaknesses and sufferings so that he could always be our representative and our faithful high priest. And so the humble nature of Jesus' birth was in keeping with the nature of his fundamental mission. He came in humility and meekness because his ultimate destiny was to be humility and meek as he was slain at Calvary. What a contrast we see now between Jesus and Caesar. Think about Caesar in this worldwide census. He was trying to announce his greatness and his power. He did everything through authority, through intimidation, through threats, through fear. And he was elevated far among the people. He was reigning as emperor, lording over them, exerting power over them, living for his own glory, surrounding himself with pomp and lavish riches, even identifying himself as a god. But he wasn't a God. And when the real God came, Jesus entered the world in utter humility. He came not to intimidate, but to serve. He did not position himself to be seen as far superior from his people, but to be seen as one of his people. His goal was not to make himself great, but to glorify the name of the Father who had sent him. And how ironic it is then that Caesar aspired to be seen by men and as a God and a Savior. He wanted all the glory. He wanted all the privilege. But then the one who actually deserved all that glory and all that privilege willfully set it aside. as a symbolic demonstration of his own love for his people. Which was to come and to serve and to seek and to save that which is lost. In my home, we typically read a Bible story to our children before bedtime, and one of the Bibles we use is the Big Picture Story Bible. And I love how the author frames this very scene. I don't often quote from children's literature, but this is so poignant. The author describes this scene when he writes, Caesar, the Roman ruler, the king of the whole Roman world, began counting all his people to show everyone how great he was. What Caesar did not know was that God, the world's true ruler, The king of the universe was getting ready to show everyone how great he was. And you know how God was going to do this? 
not like Caesar, not proudly by counting his people, but humbly by becoming one of his people. I love that. And so what does Luke want us to see from this narrative so far? That Jesus is our humble king. And he enters into our world in abject humility and lowliness. Not a glorified romantic thing. It was dirty, it was raw, it was real, it was ordinary. All that meant to demonstrate that God loves his people so much that he will go to incredible great lengths for their joy and for their salvation. Even to the point of being born in a dirty campground among animals. Even to the point of dying on a cross. And even though Jesus is the true emperor of the world, he came not as a ruler. He entered the world not in privilege, but in poverty. He came as a servant because his fundamental mission was to give his own life as a ransom for many. But even though the glory of this birth was, was veiled from Mary and Joseph and all the others around who witnessed it, this birth was still announced in a dramatic resplendent way. And then here we see another incredible Christmas contrast in this passage. Reading on now, we see starting in verse 8. And in the same reason, there were the shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and honor of peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a contrast between this scene and the scene of Christ's birth. This scene begins pretty normal. The setting is here at night, away from the hustle and bustle of the city. We are on the outskirts of town and sheep pastures, really. And we find a group of ragamuffin shepherds. And these shepherds, they, were just, they weren't special folk. They're quite the contrary. Jewish society actually viewed them almost as outcasts. Shepherds were despised people. Some people even viewed them as, as untrustworthy vagabonds and thieves. The only people in Jewish society who were less regarded than shepherds were lepers. And so if being a shepherd isn't bad enough, you know what? These were also the entry-level shepherds. These were the guys who had to stay up all night with the sheep while the other higher-level shepherds got to sleep. This was the B team, right? And so just as Jesus had an ordinary birth, here is a group of very ordinary people just chilling around a campfire on a normal night like all other nights. It's cold, it's peaceful, it's quiet, it's dark, but then... An angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear, the text says. All of a sudden, bam! The darkness and the quietness of the night vanishes, and suddenly the whole area is illuminated with the glory of heaven. Blinding light, unlike anything these, light these guys have ever seen. It's kind of like those new LED Christmas lights. You know what I'm talking about? There's some houses you can hardly look at them, because the nature of the light is like so different. That's what glory light from heaven is. And that's what filled the area here. And it extended all around the shepherds. They're immersed in it. And in the midst of that light, a radiant figure emerges. An angel appears. And the shepherds freak out. The text implies that they were filled with fear. They might have looked for an escape path. But they couldn't get away. The light was all around them. So I imagine they fell to the ground, trembling, confused, scared, feeling trapped. Perhaps thinking that their lives were about to end. 
This is not every day you see the glory of God and an angel from heaven. The angel speaks into their fear and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So here is the, now the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth. It's probably something we would have expected on the scene where Jesus was actually born. But here it comes to the shepherds. So while the scene of Jesus' birth had no announcement, no proclamation was given to Mary or Joseph, no glory light, no appearance there, no statement of what just happened, it was ordinary. Now we have something extraordinary being communicated to these shepherds. I have amazing news, the angel says. It's the word for the gospel is right in there. Good news. This news is incredible. It is good. It will produce absolute joy for you and for everyone. I will bring you good news of great joy for all the people. What an amazing introduction to the announcement I have. This must be a pretty big announcement. And then the angel tells the shepherds what has happened. A baby's been born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, according to prophecy. And who, the, who is this baby for? Notice what the text says. This is fascinating. The text says, for unto you. It's not for unto Mary or Joseph. It's unto you, poor shepherds. You dirty, scruffy, rough around the edges shepherds. There's been a baby born for you. Oh, shepherds, you may be the outcast of society, but I'm telling you there's been a miraculous baby here that is born for you. Even you. This good news is for you. Just as it's good news for everyone. Let me tell you why it's good news, the angel would say. Let me tell you about this one who is born. He is Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. Three identities are attributed to Jesus here at the announcement. And all three have rich meaning in biblical theology. When the Bible refers to Jesus as Savior, it most often means that he is the rescuer. He is the one who comes and to helps people in their distress. Jesus is the one who brings healing and help to the helpless. And the Bible refers to Christ, that Jesus as Christ. Basically means that Jesus is the anointed one. The one set apart for a special task. The title Christ is, conveys that God has given to Jesus a very special and anointed task. And then when scripture refers to Jesus as Lord, it most often means that Jesus is divine and supreme. He has authority. He has power. He is a sovereign king who has unchallenged dominion over his realm. And so what is the angel saying here? He's saying this baby, this is God's specially anointed person who is here to help his people and ultimately to reign over them as their king. In a word, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's God's chosen one who has come to rescue and he's come to rule. And in this, his people will be blessed. That's a pretty powerful announcement, isn't it? It's an incredible announcement. You'd be pretty excited if you heard it. If someone told you, hey, there's been a baby that's been born. This baby is for you. And soon he's going to rule over all the people everywhere. And they will be blessed. You'd be asking, where's this baby, right? Because of this, the angel then gives the shepherds a tip on how to find this Savior, who is Christ, who is Lord. And this will be the sign for you. We'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And the angel might have said, hey, I'm sure you want to go find this special baby, right? Well, here's how... How you know you can find, you found the right one. Look for a baby laying in a feeding trough. See that? And you found the Messiah. And this must, all this, must have undoubtedly uh, confused and bewildered the shepherds. Everything about this announcing, announcement was just shocking. The angelic appearance itself, totally shocking. 
The, the fact that the message came to them, lowly, entry-level shepherds, that was shocking. The bewildering reality that the Messiah had come first, but then also the Messiah was in a feeding trough rather than in a, in a stately palace. Everything about this was shocking. And although they had many questions, they were excited. They wanted to go and they wanted to run and they wanted to find this baby, this Messiah that had been born for them. But before they could leave, heaven had another surprise. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now if the appearance of one angel wasn't enough to get your heart racing, here things now escalate to unparalleled proportions. It must have seemed like heaven totally opened up and descended down upon these lowly shepherds. And this was sudden and instant. Again, bam, all of a sudden there was all this light upon light. And just as the shepherds were getting maybe a little bit comfortable contemplating the words of this one angel, boom, here, now heaven's glory is on full display for all of them. Now this one angel is accompanied by a multitude of angelic beings. And I don't know how many exactly, but I know that a multitude is a lot. They probably filled the sky. Going from horizon to horizon. Perhaps totally surrounding the shepherds. So much so that they probably maybe felt that they were brought up into heaven itself. And then these multitudes, they burst forth with song. Their presence was no longer to make an announcement, but to offer a public display of worship. Glory to God in the highest. And earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I have no idea what this sounded like. I have no idea what this looked like, but I can guarantee you it was glorious. It was certainly the most beautiful thing that these shepherds have ever seen. And the sound itself, too, was probably deafening. This wasn't a quiet expression of worship. This wasn't like a peaceful little, oh, silent night. The heavenly hosts were all in. We get the sense here that they couldn't contain themselves. It's almost like they were waiting, wanting to worship and praise God for what he had done. Perhaps they watched this baby being born to Mary and Joseph. And they wanted to appear over them and express this same worship and praise there. But but the father had restrained them. He said, no, no, no. Don't appear over the manger. I want things to seem ordinary there. Here you go. You go out here to the pastures and you express your praise pent up to these shepherds. They have nothing to do with what's going on over here, but, but that's where I want you to go. Right? And the result was a pent-up compulsion of praise that exploded from the heavens and filled the sky, and echoed through the night air. Glory to God in the highest. Gloria and excelsius Deo is the Latin. This thing that has happened, it is of immense glory. The, baby, the birth of this baby, it is astonishing. It is wonderful. God deserves the glory in the highest order for what he has done. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here's a foreshadow again into Christ's mission. He comes as the peace, the prince of peace. And although Jesus did not come to bring universal peace, many often think that this means that, that he's going to bring universal peace throughout the world. That's not what it means. The peace is limited to those with whom he is pleased. So there's a very particular type of peace here, spiritual peace, that is offered and given only to the souls who believe in him. It's incredible worship. Probably the most amazing worship scene this world has ever known. And with that, now consider the two dramatically different Christmas contrasts in this text here. The experience of Mary and Joseph and the experience of these shepherds. Could they possibly be more different? 
You see the amazing contrast in this text? The circumstances around the baby Jesus' birth, they were totally ordinary. And yet here, perhaps just a mile away, was an impossibly incomprehensible, glorious display, announcement, heavenly worship. Why did all of this happen in two totally different places? Why didn't the heavenly host appear like this to Mary and Joseph? After all, they were probably the ones who really needed the encouragement. The confirmation that Jesus was so special. Why why this announcement given to shepherds? It had nothing to do with what was going on over here. There are many reasons for this. One is that Jesus hasn't come just for a select few. This announcement didn't come to the people who were privileged or at a high position. It wasn't given to those who were already on the inside of what God was doing like Mary or Joseph. This message was given to outcast shepherds who here represent the everyman. They represent all of mankind. And so if Jesus was born for the shepherds, he certainly was born for us too. This announcement is for you, O shepherds. This announcement is for you, O residents of Northwest Indiana. Jesus was born unto you. His offer of salvation extends to all of us. But another overriding reason for these two very different scenes and this contrast is that the birth narrative symbolically and powerfully demonstrates two vastly different but complementary identities of Jesus. First, he's our humble king who enters into our ordinary world, sympathizes with our weakness, and loves his people by giving of himself. But he is also our glorious Messiah who reigns and rules over all of creation with unchallenged supremacy, who is anything but ordinary. He is extraordinary in every conceivable way. And so Jesus is the most majestic and glorious human person ever to walk on this earth, yet he also humbled himself in unfathomable ways, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So Jesus is among us. He's one of us. We can relate to him as our priest and our friend, but he is also far, far, far greater than us as our Lord and Savior whose glory knows no end, who heaven itself worships with unending praise. And the contrast here, it is beautiful, it is rich, and is meant to fill our hearts with great worship that fully appreciates Jesus for who he is. But going back to the scene now with the shepherds, how did this heavenly worship service end? I think perhaps just as abruptly as it started. When suddenly, poof, they're gone. And the shepherds are there, looking at each other, bewildered. What, what just happened? What did we just see? They're in shock by everything they just witnessed. Probably didn't really know what to make of it all. But they knew one thing for certain. They had a mission. They had to find this baby who was the Savior, Christ And Lord, they had to locate this newborn Messiah. And we'll look more closely at that Wednesday afternoon for Christmas Eve. But for now, having worked through these 14 verses now, what does this text have for us? What ought we learn and take away from it? Essentially, this text calls us to consider who Jesus is as the incarnate Son of God and then worship Him fully, both as our humble King but also as our glorious Messiah and Savior. Of course, to do that, you have to first acknowledge that Christ in the first place. You have to claim Jesus as your own. You have to agree in your heart with the angels that Jesus is truly Lord and Savior 
in Christ. If you've not yet done this, it would just be absolutely incredible for Christmas 2014 to be the time when you experience the greatest gift possible. The gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for those of us here who have certainly claimed Christ as our Savior and Lord, we need to consider all the ways that he's presented here. To marvel at the humanity with which he entered the world, but also to stand in awe at his fantastic glory. And to worship him as the angels. Having an explosion of joy, just this pent up in our heart, just burst out because of who he is and what he has done. But as we think of that, I think I can identify another Christmas contrast. The contrast between the hearts of the angels and the hearts of many Christians. And the contrast between those hearts is also very poignant indeed. The contrast between the heart that overflows with joy at the Christmas announcement and the heart that is more concerned about the holiday traditions and the to-do list than Jesus himself. And how sad it is that so many people today celebrate Christmas and they sing all the music and they do all the decorating and the gift-giving and they even think some about the Christmas story, but they lose sight of the reason behind it all. They lose sight of Jesus. They fail to worship him as the selfless, self-sacrificing representative on their behalf. They enjoy the Christmas story. It's an uplifting tale. But they fail to stand in real awe at the incarnation. They might even come to church and mouth Christmas music, declaring joy to the world. The Savior reigns. But in their hearts, they have little true joy for the truth they proclaim. And that this truth of infinite divine glory that was somehow miraculously compressed down into the tiny, frail body of a baby, it's lost on them and ceases to produce the wonder and the joy in our hearts that we all ought to have this holiday. So in your heart and in your life, are you making much of Jesus this holiday? Are you like the angels? Does your heart burst forth with worship and with joy because of the truths here that you celebrate? Or are you actually more like Caesar Augustus? Remember him? Caesar was all about himself. Making his name great. Announcing his own glory. Getting people to think about him. And how often do we do the same thing ourselves, even at this time of year? We sometimes buy gifts in order to impress somebody. We like to talk about ourselves. We send out Christmas letters boasting of all of our accomplishments. We look forward to times with families and friends so that we can talk about all that we're doing, all that we've done. And our natural inclination is really that of Caesar, not the angels. Our natural inclination is to make ourselves seem great. To call as much attention to ourselves as we possibly can. Instead of calling attention to Jesus. Honoring, worshiping Christ first and foremost. Is your heart like Caesar this Christmas? Or is it like the angels? That's the contrast this text calls us to that I leave with you to consider now. The angels were overjoyed to make this announcement about Jesus. How excited are you to share that same message? How much do you prioritize making that same announcement yourself? Parents of children. What is the announcement of Jesus like in your own home? How much do you talk about what he's done this time of year? 
Do you celebrate Jesus first and foremost in your home with your children? How much of your focus is all on gifts and family activity? How much of the focus is on yourselves rather than on Jesus? Think of the exuberant song the angels sang. They exploded in worship. They could hardly contain themselves. Do you have any of that in your home, in your own heart, in your life this Christmas season? And do you realize this? We have more cause for joy than even the angels did. We have much more cause for joy than the angels had. See, the angels didn't need Jesus to come to earth. They didn't need him to make the sacrifice that he would make. They didn't need a savior. We do. And we have one in Christ. Which should be for us a cause of unending joy. See, for the angels, Jesus was just a wonder to worship. But for us, Jesus is our Savior, without which we would have nothing. And for the angels, they get to relate to Jesus as his servants. But in Christ, we relate to Jesus as his sons and daughters. In Christ, we are children of the Most High God. In Christ, we have a position before God that is far better than any angel. Because we've been declared heirs of the kingdom. Because we can worship him in incredible ways through the ways through which he has saved us. That is why even better than knowing Jesus as an angel is knowing Jesus as a sinner. Did you get that? Even better than knowing Jesus as an angel is knowing Jesus as a sinner. Does your heart believe that? Is there a real joy in your heart today about this? I think we all struggle with it. Especially with all the pressures of the to-do list are all around us. And if it is a struggle, I encourage you, stop thinking so much about Christmas. Start thinking more about Christ. Do that and you'll have a heart of joy that explodes like the angels. Because of the extraordinary things that a little baby born in the most ordinary way has done for you. Let's pray. Glory to God in the highest. It is truly a miracle. Our fathers, we think about what you did sending your son to this world. Lord, we need to stand in awe of this. And we need to have hearts that are truly captured by this truth that then cause within us a wellspring of joy and worship and praise. So Lord, help us to have these truths, have this reality of God made flesh, born as an infant baby who would ultimately suffer and die for our sake. Have that truth marinate deeply into our hearts. And may we, from it, be compelled to worship you in vibrant, heartfelt ways, living not for ourselves or our own glory, but God making most your name great this holiday season and always. Help us to have that heart for you, we pray. In the name of our incarnate, beautiful, glorious, humble Savior, Jesus.